Amen. You be seated. We are thrilled to have you this morning with us at the uh, Antioch campus of Blue Valley. Hope you have had a, a really, really great week. I uh, hope you enjoyed the cool weather the last few days and are ready to just bake something terrible for the next uh, week or so. But we are glad you are here in the climate-controlled comfort of our worship center this morning. Let's begin by uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen something that was so amazing that it that it just kind of left you in a, in a stunned silence, speechless. Until the day I die, the coolest thing that I think that I will ever see is the total solar eclipse of August 2017. Now, I have friends in this room who think I'm ridiculous for saying so. But I say to them, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. You didn't see it. And they will say back to me, but I was here in Johnson County, I saw it go to 99%, and I say, exactly. You didn't see it go total. You saw something, but you didn't see what I saw, not even close. Now, I'm going to admit to you that I had built the experience up in my head probably to proportions where it could do nothing but fail. Uh, I called a, a staff day off. We got into a bus we drove to the only place in the Kansas City Metro that was sunny that day, I think, so that we could see it. Um, and, and right up until the moment that it happened, I'm going to admit to you that I was disappointed. Because up until the moment of totality, it was just a really big eclipse. But when it went total, everything about it just changed. The sky turned to a really different color of blue, and the corona was shooting out of the blackened disc. It was absolutely incredible. But what I will remember most, and people from the first service said exactly, that's exactly what it was. The moment of it going total, everyone cheered, and then not only did people fall silent, the world, in a weird way that I can't explain, just got quiet. All of creation shut up for a little bit. And it was just the most amazing thing ever. There's another one just south of us next April, and uh, the next one after that in North America will be when and if I'm 79. So there's probably a really good chance that I'm going to head down that way in April of next year, but by myself, not with the staff. Frankly, I don't want to spend that much time with them. <laughs> I, I think we can all conjure up something like that from our experience. But whatever it is that we may have experienced that we reflect back on as leaving us speechless pales in comparison to what the Jews see in this, our last message from the last chapter of the book of Exodus. If you would please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. Now, you know that normally when we read a portion of God's Word, we stand to honor the author. Um, but I'm going to do something that I've not uh, hardly ever done. I'm going to read an entire chapter that day. And because you've, you've probably, or today, but, but probably because you've not carbo-loaded uh, in order to be able to stand that long, I'm going to let you remain seated. God's okay with it. He let me know. Um, and I'm just going to begin reading in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 40. You follow along in your copy of God's Word or on the screens. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put, it in the ark, put in it the ark of testimony, 
and you shall screen the ark with a veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that they may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priest and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout all their generations. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and he set up its frames and he put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and he arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. He put up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He, he put in place the screen before the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished his work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys.
Now, why did I take time to read the whole thing? Well, because I I feel like it's going to be easier for me to kind of summarize it for you, knowing what rests there. And I think I can pretty quickly do that right now, because repetition actually should have already alerted you to a few things that we are meant to see. First of all, did you notice there was a repeated emphasis twice on the timing of it all? The first day of the first month of the second year. Now, does anyone here remember the significance of that. Obviously, you can work a calendar. We're being told that it was the, their New Year's Day. But do you remember what determined the new year? The day that they left Egypt. They left Egypt on the day that became their January 1st. So the redemption from slavery had taken place exactly one year prior to the events that we just read about. Their New Year's Day then was the equivalent for us of our our Good Friday and Easter celebration. And it was on this day that they erected the tabernacle of the Lord that they had been instructed to put together. That's the first thing that should have jumped out at us. But the second thing that obviously jumps out at us is the repetition of some variation of the phrase, uh, as the Lord commanded Moses. In the message from Father's Day, which I'm sure you've committed to memory, uh, we uh, dealt with the detail of Exodus 25 through 27, where the instructions for the building of the tabernacle are given. And when we did that, we reflected on how the Lord was particular in how we approach Him, that we can't just freewheel how we approach the Lord's command. So we see Moses being very particular about obeying everything that the Lord had instructed and by extension, the people of Israel being very particular about doing everything that the Lord had instructed. They weren't shirking a single one of the commands for the tabernacle that they had been given. Thirdly, the thing that should have jumped out at us was the thing that took everybody's breath away. The Lord's occupancy of the tabernacle that was built for him. It was an event so powerful and so awe-inspiring that no one, not even Moses, could enter into it. And lastly, don't overlook the fact that when God moved, the people moved. And the people moved when God moved. Essentially, when God made his tent, the people would make their tent. And when he metaphorically pulled up his stakes, they would pull up theirs. And so that's it. We learn in Exodus chapter 40 that God came to dwell among his people when the tabernacle was erected on the one-year anniversary of the Exodus. And in uh, summarizing all of that for you, I have functioned for you as a very good Jewish rabbi. (laughs) But I'm not a Jewish rabbi. I am a New Testament pastor. And so when I read these things, I have to ask myself, in what way is is this propelling me towards Christ? Is there anything from this, other than just reviewing God's history and dealing with His people, that is causing me to catch a greater glimpse of who Jesus is as my Savior and Lord? And the answer to that question is abundantly and absolutely yes. So hold your spot in Exodus chapter 40, and if you would please find John 1 in your copy of God's Word. Now, John 1 is one of those passages that we usually reserve for Christmas. And so this is Christmas in July 
for us as we're reviewing it today. You'll remember that John 1 begins with the words, in the beginning was the Word. What is John doing here? Well, John is, is borrowing from a, a concept uh, from the, the Greek Stoics uh, philosophers and from Hellenistic Jews, this idea of what they called the Logos, the Word, uh, being the divine element as it were, that permeated the universe. They all admitted that there was something working in the background of the universe that had a spark of the divine, and they didn't know what to call it. And so they created this term from their language, logos, the word. So what John is doing here is telling the rest of the story. He's borrowing this, this term, uh, this, this uh, philosophical idea, the word, and he's saying, I know, I know more detail about that which you have deduced. His name is Jesus. He is saying in John 1 that Jesus is the divine element that permeates the universe. Jesus was the Word, he says. And then, lest anybody miss what he's saying, he says, oh, by the way, Jesus was God. And because it was Jesus who was the Word, who was God, that was the Logos, the divine element permeating the universe, he's much more than just some kind of detached divine power in the background noise of our lives. By identifying the Logos as Jesus, he's saying he's personal, that, that he had, had stepped into the physical universe that throbbed with his presence, according to uh, a man named Paul in uh, Colossians chapter 1, a book of the Bible. And he stepped into that physical universe and made himself known. This is what John says. John says that in coming to the world... Jesus acted as a light shining, pointing to himself as that divine element permeating the universe. He said that he was a light, John 1, 5, shining in the darkness. And then we come to the words that, that are a part of every Christmas Eve, John 1, 14. And here's what those words say. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's lost on us, because John's language is not our native language and we're reading it in English, is that John has in mind, in John 1.14, Exodus chapter 40. You see that word dwelt? The noun that feeds that verb is the word tabernacle. And so what he is saying is that the word, the divine element permeating the universe, Jesus became flesh, stepped into the physical universe, and tabernacled among us. Now, that's literally what he says. It would land in people's ears as dwelt. That's the reason it's in English as dwelt, but he's literally saying the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And, and, and then he adds these words. He says, we've seen His glory. You see, John is saying that just as God made His tent 
among the people in Exodus 40 and filled that tent with His glory, in Christ, God has made His tent among humanity in Jesus and in so doing has shown us the glory of God. John is saying that the glory of God was no longer manifesting itself as a cloud or a fire, but in the olive flesh that covered the hands and the feet and the face of a Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. And he continues to do so. Again, not to go all grammar nerd on you, but the the verb tense that John uses here in his language communicates a definite and completed action that there's no reversing, no going back on. So what he's saying is, is that God, when God made his tent in human flesh, in Jesus, he did so once, always, and forever. Why is that important? Because it reminds us that when Jesus was was crucified. He was crucified in the flesh. And when he was resurrected, he wasn't resurrected in spirit. He was resurrected in the human flesh. And when he ascended to the Father, he ascended to the Father in human flesh. And in what blows all of our minds when we stop to think about it, he exists now at the right hand of the Father in human flesh. And so for all of those reasons and more, He is called Emmanuel, God with us. And so the glory of God in the tabernacle points to the glory of God dwelling in Jesus Christ. And yet many don't see God's glory in Jesus. John says in John 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. They didn't see His glory. Even in the inky blackness of a sin-darkened world, mankind failed to comprehend the light. And so we say, those silly people. But when is the last time that you've thought of Jesus as glorious? Past just a few minutes ago when we sing, I stand amazed. We tend to think of Jesus as as a friend, certainly. And as a good shepherd, of course. But when's the last time we thought of Jesus as glorious? It might be because we don't understand glory. To get to the heart of what glory means, you have to let a, the Greek word for glory that, that John uses and the Hebrew word for glory that we see in the Old Testament kind of play with one another and create something new. In Hebrew thought, the word for glory carries the idea of weight. Why? Because the worth of something was measured on a scale to determine the weight of that something. If it was heavier, it was more valuable. It was less heavy, it was less valuable. In, in Greek thought, the word glory uh, carries with it the idea of a, uh, a visible manifestation of something. So when you put all of this together, you realize that what the Bible is telling us is that God's glory 
was a visible manifestation of His worth. And that is what we behold in Jesus. The visible manifestation of the worth of God. But how is that worth measured? A few weeks back, Zach brought us a message from Exodus 34. And in that chapter, Moses said, Hey, God, I'd like to see you. And God said, I can't do that because if you saw me in all my glory, you would die. But God did agree to shield Moses in the cleft of the rock. And this is what God's Word says, while his glory passed by. But you don't get a a description of what his glory looked like in Exodus 34, do you? You get a description of what his glory sounded like in the words of God, who when he passes by says these words, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, but will who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. If you need a definition of the glory of God, that is it. It is a mercy that never fails, a forgiveness that is greater than all sin, and a holiness that calls all men to account. These things are his glory. So when John says we beheld his glory, he is saying in Jesus we saw a mercy that never fails, a forgiveness that is greater than all sin, and a holiness that calls the unrepentant to account. That is the glory that we behold in Jesus. It's not light. And a, and, a, and, a, and a blinding experience filled with noise and all, all of those things will accompany the, the glory of God. But the glory of God is a mercy that never fails, a, a forgiveness that is greater than all sin, and a holiness that calls all men to account. And that's what we should see in Jesus. So how can we experience that glory in Jesus? Anew, uh, for those of us who have maybe followed him for decades, and for the first time, for those who might have come to church today looking for the best life coach, but instead are being confronted that they need a God. Well, using Exodus 40 as our guide, we learn to experience God's glory in Jesus in three ways I want to share with you quickly. First, we must reflect on what he's done. There's a purpose, remember, behind the tabernacle being erected on the first day of the new year that is the first anniversary of the Exodus. It was to remember that the basis of this relationship was the salvation that God had brought to Israel in the exodus from Egypt. It was done on that day in part for the people to reflect on the glory of God's work in saving them. We can do the same thing as we reflect on 
the cross. In the cross, we can see in a greater way the, the glory from which Moses was shielded. In, in the dying Jesus, God in human flesh, we see the visible manifestation of God's glory and a mercy that never fails and a, a forgiveness that is greater than all sin. And because it's God up there, a holiness that calls all people to account. And it is that idea of a dying God that is central to the worship of heaven. John writes of this awesome truth in Revelation 5, when the chorus of heaven sings to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. What makes him worthy? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The chorus of heaven sees the glory of God by reflecting on what Christ has done. And so, if we want to, to, to reaccess the idea of Jesus as glorious, we have to spend some time thinking of the redemption from our sin that he has made possible. We have to, to spend some time reflecting on the offense of our sin before the holy God. Not so we'll feel guilty, but so then we can grasp a little bit of the, the lengths that he went to himself in Jesus to undo that offense. If we can do that, we can... Reflect on what Jesus has done for us in saving us and catch a glimpse of the glory of God. And we must also obey what he said. Remember that emphasis over and over again in Exodus 40 that Moses did just as the Lord had commanded. And the outcome of that obedience was an experience of God's glory that was burned into the collective memory of the people of Israel. So what did Jesus say that we must obey? Well, we're thinking that's impossible. You're absolutely right. That's the reason the foundational thing to all that Jesus said, all of his commands is this, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I'll give you rest. The work of managing our own sin is, in, is exhausting, and if Scripture is to be believed, it is impossible. There is no one righteous, no, not one, according to both Old and New Testaments. But by responding to Jesus' command to come to Him, we can find a rest from our futile efforts to make ourselves worthy to God by reflecting on the fact that we are not worthy, but He is, and then we experience His glory. So to experience the glory of God in Jesus, we must reflect on what He's done in saving us. We must obey what He has said, and then finally we must behold who He is. The people of Israel witnessed the cloud of God's glory descend on the tabernacle in such a, a, a massive way that they could not even enter. They could only stand back and marvel at who this God was and what He had done to save them. So how do we do that? 
How do we behold all of that? How do we behold the glory of God in Jesus? Uh, again, the, the New Testament author Paul in a book called Romans gives us an idea. He says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead. It is the resurrection that allows us to behold the full glory of God in Jesus. And that is something that we must do more than just Easter. The early church reflected on the glory of God in the resurrection every single Sunday they gathered. How do I know that? Because as they reflected on it and the amazing thing that God had done in raising Jesus from the dead... They thought, you know what? Our old practices of worshiping on Sunday according to Jewish or Saturday according to Jewish custom don't work for us anymore. Let's just move it to Sunday so that we can come together each and every week and say, Can you believe it? Jesus is alive. Doesn't that blow your mind? Let's do it again next Sunday. And they did it over and over and over again. So, so there shouldn't be a single day that we get together as a church where we fail to marvel at the fact that Jesus is alive. We should never gather on a Sunday without remembering that ourselves. And you may think that you need the world's best life coach and that church should be geared that way, but Jesus is just a nobody if he's dead. But because he's alive, He's everything, including everything that we need. And when we remember He's alive, we behold His glory. This message series has sought to help you see that the book of Exodus reveals God, shows us who He is. That's the reason Pastor Micah, in forming this series, titled it that way. But perhaps nowhere does it fulfill its purpose better than in this final chapter. But our goal here has not been to help you just see who God is. It's been to help you experience who God is. And to say we've seen how to do that. If you've received Jesus as Savior, you've been able to experience Him as as God since the day you gave your life to Him. And the opportunity to celebrate His glory has been yours every single day. And what we're being called back to today is to just remember the glorious nature of our Savior and, and to reflect on it and behold it as a habit of our life. But if you've not yet given your life to Jesus, if you've come here thinking that, again, you need the world's best life coach, and a little advice to propel you forward. I hope today that you have seen that you get in Jesus so much more than that. You get a God whose mercy never fails, whose forgiveness is greater than all sin, but whose holiness calls us all to bow before him as God. And if that's something this morning that you believe God has finally led you to understand. I want you to join me in prayer.